Just a quick note for your listeners, this episode comes in not one, but two parts, because the guest we had on was just so brimming with information. If you found this one, I have full faith in you, you can find the other half, so enjoy them both, and we'll see you again for another one. We won't see you, because this is a podcast, but you get the meaning, I'm rambling now. Anyway, enjoy this episode, and indeed, it's other 50%. Hello and welcome to Cyphedelic, the podcast that gives you a sneak peek behind the interactive experience and wider escape room industry. Each week we welcome a guest from within this world, from designers to CEOs, to ask them how they came to be so that we can absorb some of their sweet, sweet knowledge. My name is Dan, I'm a GM and experience maker at Time Trap Escape Rooms in Reading. I'm Jamie, a software developer who helps to design and build many of the tech puzzles as part of the Imaginarium design team. This week, our guest is Nick Moran, a man that needs no introduction. He's the creative mind behind the, sadly no longer with us, groundbreaking multi-world adventure Time Run. Together with Stephen Moffat and Mark Gattis, he launched Sherlock The Game Is Now, and his most recent creation is the open-world adventure Phantom Peak in Canada Water in London. And the way this is going to work is, I guess, just like your standard escape room, except instead of puzzles, we'll be interviewing. And instead of moving about, we are sat perfectly motionless. We'll first get to know Nick for a brief before puzzling it out, where we'll learn all about building a fully immersive open world. And finally, we'll wind down with the debrief before bidding adieu to our guest. So before we get into it, just like in any standard escape room, you're going to first need a quick Safety brief. Please keep your arms and legs inside the podcast at all times. Fire doors are just for show, so in the event of a fire, good luck. In the event of an emergency landing at sea, your children may double as a flotation device. Mrs. Hudson is your landlady, not your caretaker, so please leave the room in the state you came in. And please do not feed the platypie to the platypuses. (laughs) So, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks very much for having me. It's it's a pleasure. It's also you're quite you're quite pixelated, so your faces are like weird, scary blobs. Which oh, that's nice. just what we look like. Those are our actual faces. Oh, okay. We've committed so many crimes that these aren't even our real voices. We're currently being dubbed by actors. <laughs> oh, how how expensive does Andrew know? <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't seem like a good use of the budget. That's a subjective opinion, I think. Yeah. There, Nick. Uh, oh, well, fair enough. So um, we're going to dive right into the brief. Um, so I want to start, uh, we want to get to know a little bit about you. So before you entered the escape room industry, what were you doing? What was your career at the time before you moved over? So, you know, those patchwork quilts that kind of grandmas make, right? Yep. My whole life was one terrifying patchwork quilt <laughs> of things stitched together. Um, some could do an analogy about chainmail here. I'm not going to do that. That would be particularly gross. Um, but it's like a patchwork quilt of various different things. So I was, I used to work as a copywriter. Oh, yeah. I used to have um, uh, an immersive theatre company with some people who produced spectacularly failed events. Brilliant. I mean, my God, I was a master of failure. You just cannot imagine how many failures I had. You would be jealous. If you like failure, I was your man. <laughs> um, I, was, uh, I uh, was a video editor, video producer. That was one of my main things. Oh, nice. um, just one of the things I still do a lot, um, just for all the things I do. Uh, and a freelance writer. So they're like, the three main things really were like, Writing, making videos, and writing copy, which is just writing, but for more money. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's writing, but also, like, you, you get paid well for it. Right, nice. <laughs> Unlike most writing. So, given the really nice pay for copywriting, what was it that made you, what was it that then turned you to the escape room industry? 
you know, copywriting and making videos are pretty much my bread and butter. But at the same time, with some other people, a man named um, Josh Ford and a man named Ben Mason, we had an immersive theatre company together. And our goal was to make sort of gamified immersive theatre, do all the things that we liked about immersive theatre, which was an open world with agency and decision making, and bring all the stuff we liked about video games to that and make a world where play and agency were celebrated. Oh, nice. And we produced uh, an event called Wilfred Bradshaw's Time Emporium, which was uh, another spectacular failure, but don't worry, that was just one of many. Not for the uh, name, though. No, the name is brilliant. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, name was, the name was good. It, it was actually... In many ways, very successful, but in many ways, very not. It was like had a lot of really good ideas, but we just really couldn't, we couldn't really execute it yet. We didn't have that kind of skill. Right. And then we were like, well, you know, we really like all these ideas, you know, and escape rooms were happening at the time as well. The stitch started to come up and we're like, how about we take all the ideas, all things you want to do and kind of apply them to this format that just the structure that had just kind of emerged. And we found some people who wanted to put some money into it. And together we made this company called Time Room. And that was basically how it happened. It was me kind of, and these other two guys being like, how can we make something which really feels like it's centered around the player and their agency and their narrative journey um, rather than necessarily around a series of kind of arbitrary puzzles strung together. So rather coming from like that story and immersion and world and navigating your way through it point of view rather than coming from it from necessarily a kind of pure puzzle design point of view. Right. So different kind of an RPG, I guess, yeah. kind of view yeah. on escape rooms rather than necessarily a pure puzzle design point of view of escape room. So that's kind of the journey in. And also it wasn't that well paid as a copyright. It wasn't that successful. <laughs> <laughs> it was just better. It was just better paid than nothing. <laughs> if zero is the baseline anything, <laughs> and, 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 and like anything is infinitely better. <laughs> Was it quite a similar experience then? Going like the, I guess starting out with the immersive theatre to then time run. Did it feel like you were sort of building of the same thing, or did it feel very, very different? Completely, completely different. Because because um, for the first time, because we had partners and uh, kind of investors in the project, for the first time, I did something with a budget in my life, and that was that was something that was terrifying. My God, <laughs> actually, be able to make things that are nice rather than be like. This this hanging beef in this butcher's shop looks an awful lot like painted cloth. This corpse looks an awful lot like painted cloth. And this projection, that's not a projection screen. That's white cloth, unpainted. So uh, it was nice for the first time to be able to, because we always had, we like the one thing which, you know, my background before that was before I moved into obviously the working world. I did a master's in um, sort of uh, script writing and narratology, the structure of stories and how those work, and that was something that I was very interested in. And so, for example, the the event that we made, Wolf of Baxter's Time Emporium, like a lot of the thinking was right. It was just the execution couldn't be done. So I'd kind of got a lot of the way I want. I had it in my mind of how I wanted it to work from a kind of structure point of view, you know, the kind of the classical paradigm, making sure those beats all met for the customer journey. I just never had really the opportunity to, to do it in a way that was structurally worked within a contained environment. Yeah. Um, and didn't have two days to uh, build in a venue, which we temporarily hired. <laughs> uh, so it was nice to have more than two days. Uh, so... Uh, it, there were similarities, but it, uh, overall the process was much more formalized and had more time and uh, yeah, a, a luxury in many ways um, to actually try and get a lot of these things that I'd always wanted to get right and just always assumed would work and try and put them into practice. 
and with the benefit of having more materials than just cloth by the sounds of it, which was a nice Yeah, I, had, I, I also had some wood. So. <laughs> we'll get you. <laughs> don't get jealous, guys. Pixelated blocks. <laughs> I'm assuming you guys, I, I don't know. I mean, you, it's, 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 it's getting gradually worse. One of you just looks like a smeary thumb. <laughs> I'm not saying who. Oh, I'm, it's me. It's definitely me. This is the weirdest. It's definitely. It's definitely. I'm not sure. Yes. Complimented to be a smelly thumb. <laughs> oh no! This this is this is an insult. Oh, okay. Well, I think smelly thumb is better than pixelated blob. Oh, I. It, it is. It is absolutely not. And if you think that, you are incorrect. Let <laughs> tell you. It's lovely to have you on the podcast, Nick. Uh, we'll be speaking to you. I'm sure sometime <laughs> in the future. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> So we'll move swiftly along from that. Um, obviously, we have a very escape room heavy audience and you're big in the industry. So how many escape rooms have you done? Uh, how many escape rooms have I done? I don't keep track. Sorry. I suspect it's between 100 and 200, Okay, which is a bit, which is a big range. I understand. But around, uh, I'm not a particularly ordered person in the way that I keep track. Of, I'm not like a hobbyist. For example, for me, I've never, I've never really had hobbies. I just have sort of passing interests. Yeah. So for me to keep track of them, I don't keep track of anything in my life. My life <laughs> is just, my life is chaos. Why would I keep track of escape rooms? Something where I actually don't have to worry about anything. The one part which is actually fun. Why would I make order there? Um, uh, and also, I'm always putting disorder on these escape rooms and ransacking them. It feels insulting <laughs> to then go and rack them on an ordered list at the end. Like, oh, well, I may have come, may have come destroyed your venue for the last hour and a half, taking everything off the shelves. But at the end, you've got a nice little ordered list with a number by it. Uh, between 100 and 200, I think, somewhere okay. around there. So I assume you don't remember what your first escape room was then, do you? I do. I have. Just because I didn't put things on a list doesn't mean I don't have a memory. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, but you might not remember it as your first because it might just be somewhere in the mishmash of the escape room. That's that is not how memory works. <laughs> that is not how like the, just because I don't write everything down does not mean I don't have the basic grasp of time. I think we've just learned a lot about how Dan's memory works. This is how though. my yeah, day works. Have. Yeah, exactly. If I don't, if I, I, like, I remember the sequence of events across my life, especially notable ones like playing my first escape room. <laughs> my God, uh, yes, I do remember my first escape room. It was uh, Hint Hunt uh, in King's Cross in London. And I think that was actually, a, it's a very common first escape room for kind of a lot of people of my kind of escape room generation. Uh, it was uh, JM, John, the office of John Monroe, uh, JM's office, sort of iconic in its okayness. Iconically fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is that still going? I'm sure they'll want to use that as a, as a quote. Uh I, I, it is, it is not. R.I.P. 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 Hinhan. They were, bit, they were, they were the big boy at one point. They were like the biggest skating company, I think, in Europe, and they spread out with JM's office everywhere. My God, those that moment when there was a black light, wow, changed somebody's <laughs> life. And uh, but I think I think they um, overexpanded and their games weren't they weren't kind of good enough. But yeah, like they were they were big at one point. I think a big Eastern European chain. Someone who uh, knows more about this industry than me won't be able to put the timeline of exactly when they occurred. But they were one of the big boys, big early boys. You spoke earlier on about moving the immersive theatre to sort of like the escape room format. Had you played many escape rooms before you made this decision, or had you sort of made the decision first and then you wanted to try some? Like, how did it work? Uh, I had not played that many escape rooms, but the ones I had played at the time, it was all, it was all such a kind of early escape room kind of market. Yeah. They were all, you know, once you played a couple, you kind of played them all. It yeah. was very like early, early industry stuff. There wasn't really any, 
any standouts. And it's to be honest, it's uh, it's easy to innovate uh, when no one is doing anything different yet. You, know, yeah. you have the advantage of time rather than necessarily the advantage of skill. Yeah. So one thing I had is the advantage of just being a bit earlier than everyone else <laughs> yeah. um, rather than necessarily being like some sort of genius or anything. So it was one of these things of like, if you come from like a more theater background, then it's quite easy to see like how these things can be improved with just a few basic things, you know, like, oh, better sets, uh, like better, like an actual like three act narrative about the player focusing the journey on the player uh, like characters situations motives stakes just like basic cinematic storytelling stuff and just being like all right and then of course the complicated part is also the executing part which is obviously always a bit harder anyone yeah. could have the ideas but executing is always much more difficult and then putting on that format was kind of how we worked out how time run worked and also we changed how we did a a different model of how people could get through the game which we called pipelining which i think is more common nowadays but to try and up the footfall at the same time uh, pipelining i think is something that sherlock implements if i'm thinking of what pipelining is correctly anyway it does yeah. it does uh, you know uh, that was a uh, another experience in my life um, we'll we'll, uh, we'll come on to save that because we'll come on to that in a little bit to be continued to be continued <laughs> All right, well, that is the end of the fun chit-chat. So all the joy stops here. We're going to get into the serious the serious stuff about the escape room industry. From mm-hmm. here on out, the questions really count. Oh, good. Terrifying. Um, how do you think that your approach to game design has changed since you first started? I think I have uh, come full circle a little bit. I think I All right. started, I started uh, originally I thought the puzzles didn't really matter. You've not gone back to cloth. Only, uh, yes, now I'm well, wearing it, aren't I? You can see. <laughs> what an insulting question. I can't tell if you are. <laughs> Just blobs. Does that not imply there was a period where you wore wooden clothes? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's amazing what you can do with pulp. Uh, just stream it on your body and no one can tell the difference from really, really far away. <laughs> like really far away. Or just via the kind of cameras you're using. Um, so, wow. um, uh, yeah. So uh, from a from a kind of, uh, uh, kind of circular point of view, I think I started off very much focused on, uh, like much more focused on like character situations, stories, things like that. And I think as I developed and did more escape rooms, I kind of begun to think puzzles mattered more. And now I've come back to the point that puzzles don't really matter. So like my, my general thing is, is that originally I felt that uh, puzzles don't matter. It's how puzzles make you feel. And now, and then for a while I was like, maybe I should really work harder getting better at making puzzles. And then I realized that it didn't really matter. And all that matters is how puzzles make you feel again. That's where, so that's, if my journey, my journey is just uh, a, a kind of endlessly regressing until I become a fetus. Brilliant. Which I'm looking forward to. <laughs> and then I'll have another full life. Nice. And then you'll go back to the same old cycle. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. I don't like change, but Lovely. I love it. So if that isn't as important to you now, what is up there in the importance list? The emotional journey of players. That's what matters. That's all that matters in every situation. That uh, players feel like they're a character in a situation with a motive undergoing dramatic action so that, that, that they understand what the they are feel in control of the story that they're driving and they, you know, follow... Um, there are many different paradigms you can use, whether the ironic paradigm or the classical paradigm, but uh, like a, a structure of stories that allows them to undergo, feel like they undergo change and growth and knowledge. And at the end, they reach a point of higher understanding. And that is desire, obstacle, solution. I'm a character in a situation with a motive. There is something in front of me. And at the end of it, I have a solution um, is the essential thing for a experience that 
matters to players and creates emotional impact in players. And the the those things, as long as desire, you know, are what I want to do is clear, uh, the obstacle in the way is clear and fair, and the solution is immediate and the reward is obvious, then across the game on a macro level and across puzzles on a micro level, people will feel like they're satisfied and understand what the story is and understand what the beats of the emotional journey is. And that is what really matters. And I think that one why um, the thing I find most frustrating is when people think and people get worried too much about puzzles when they're designing escape rooms, because ultimately no one really, very few people really remember the puzzles of the escape rooms that they've done, uh, you know, no matter how many hundreds they've done. And I do remember things because I do have a memory and live, live, live a life and I'm a real person skeptics on this podcast <laughs> otherwise um I, you know i've played a lot of escape rooms and i remember a few puzzles and mostly i remember them because of the amazing thing that happened at the end the shaft of life like you know the shaft of like hitting the wall on the the across on the grave or you know the mirror opening and a terrifying woman clambering out i don't remember what actually happened i you know before that i just remembered i did something and this amazing thing occurred and that gave an emotional impact and i think that what's happened is that as we've got more enthusiasts in the industry as the kind of industry's grown, uh, that people's feedback has been listened to, but people don't really know what they actually really value. And one of the things that people actually value look at enthusiast surveys is they value puzzles first often and then discovery second. And actually it's the other way around. What people care most is about amazing reveals, moments that they feel that the experience is giving them exciting rewards to them and moments where they feel they come to a point of higher understanding. They've discovered something about the world, something about the plot, something about the characters they care about. You know, it's like a show, it's a show with people at the center of it. And that is what matters most to being in a, making a good escape room. In my opinion, there are different schools of thought, but I'm correct. So you're very much on the uh, the opinion of immersion and I guess clear direction is what it sounds like with you mentioned having to know what you need to do and it's clear and what the objective is and what the end goal is going to be. It's all clear, like not necessarily signposted, but hypothetically signposted exactly well the thing is is like you know a, a, a bad movie or a bad book is where you go oh, where is this all going yeah you know that that and uh or you know like bad tv show you know like uh like the recent tv show rings of power where i had no idea what any characters are doing anything <laughs> i was so i was like why are these characters doing stuff this is so confusing <laughs> I mean, I, I'm apart from uh, apart from the woman who played Gladriel, who seems to be like in a significantly better TV series on her own. Um, uh, but yeah, again, like that thing of like, I don't know why the characters are doing this. I don't know why the characters are saying this. So therefore, I don't know how to celebrate their wins, and I don't know how to celebrate their downfalls, and I don't know how to feel excited about what's going to happen. You know, part of the excitement of doing something is anticipation. How are you supposed to know what to anticipate if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing? Yeah. And I think what's what I've seen is that. You know, set design is set design is incredibly important and unbelievable important tool in immersion. And I think that's one thing that a lot of really good companies do well. But a lot of really good companies also understand that it's important to understand why you're in that set, where you're going in that set, how you use lighting and sound for effect and all these kind of things. And those things matter most. But I look at a lot of these games that are really popular amongst, uh, like in Europe and the ones that rank the highest often are the ones that just the player knows what they're supposed to be doing the whole time. The sets are incredible. It moves at a great pace. There's a brilliant game in Europe, which I played, uh, whose name is in Greek and I can't remember the actual english translation not because i don't remember things but because it was in greek a language i don't natively speak um uh, just to clarify um 
and uh, and there uh, there was just like the first puzzle in that game is just your it's just is a key in a river and it's just really nicely signposted but it's like a you're so excited there's like a physical river there but it really makes sense that the character who's thrown it there is like don't come in this place it's really scary and I've thrown the key away and you're like oh great I understand what I'm doing I understand that I'm transgressing I understand that I'm accepting this is going to be a scary experience your sort of complicitness in that world with a very simple first puzzle is more exciting than 90% of the, you know, Enigma machine things I've seen that I don't really understand uh, and get someone else to do in escape rooms <laughs> or, or logic puzzles where yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, I understand this is a puzzle, but whew. again, you, your connection with that because of the desire, obstacle, solution, you understand what you're supposed to be going, what you're supposed to be doing. So you would, uh, would you agree then that the uh, sort of flaw of some escape room design is uh, focusing too hard on the puzzles and possibly even overcomplicating them for, I guess, no reason. It's 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 not focusing on the player. Yeah, it's like like you can have a you can have really hard puzzles in a game, but where does it go? It should go at the midpoint of the experience. That's where you've got time for a you know for a hard puzzle. Everyone's warmed up. They've undergone. They, you know they've had. They understand the inciting incident, which changed the world. They're in the middle of that second act, and that that midpoint where you're like this, you know. Where you know in an Indiana Jones film, the Ark of the Covenant was snatched away by the Nazis. He's never gonna get. He's never gonna get the Ark of the Covenant. His old Indy, and you're like, oh no, Indy, no, that's really bad. That's the moment you deploy a really hard puzzle when you're like, my God, I'm never gonna beat this game. I'm never gonna win this game. It's so far away. I'm at this really hard puzzle, and then of course you know you have the falling action of climbing to that second act conclude you know, conclusion. You know, just like there's a reason why you know the. The, all these movies, all these things are are structured in this way because yeah. it's a very successful structure. Like David Bamett, dramatist, talks in on the uses, uh, what is it, the, on the uses of the knife, whatever it's called, the, um, the nature and purpose of drama. He has this um, long essay, actually not that long, but four or five pages, talking about the perfect ball game. And the perfect ball game is one where you know your team struggles and but in the end wins out against the odds. And that's how pe- an escape room should feel. You know, and that's yeah. what the player journey should be. And it should be like, it will the player feel like they struggled, they learned, they overcame the odds and they came out better and they feel like they're, you know, doing a victory lap around the baseball place. I've never seen a baseball game and I don't know anything about it. I just know it's in a place. So it's baseball land. Baseball <laughs> land. Where the ball goes. <laughs> So you, it sounds like you are quite heavily inspired by theatre and plays, uh, is the best way I can put it off the top of my head, um, and film, I suppose, like you said, with the, the how the story is constructed to like keep you engaged. I have, I just try and learn from people who are smarter than me and who have done things nice. that are better than me, and therefore be like, maybe they know what they're talking about. <laughs> That's my rule is, is like, Again, do the do the work. You know, be like, I know. You know, never assume that you're never assume that you're an innovator. Always assume that there is someone who's cleverer than you, who's written better than you. You know, be the second smartest person in the room. Be the second smartest person in the room, and you like stand on the shoulders of giants, man. You know, not the, not that really bad Oasis album, which is like, <laughs> like dreadful. What were you doing, Noel Gallagher? So much cocaine, so the Noel Gallagher, just really tra- tragic amounts of cocaine. they're old and I think there was a good single from the album but nothing more this is not Uh, where I thought this was going at all this is the first cocaine mention we've had on the podcast yeah congratulations it's all right. I can mention it again later on in my. please do we'll put in a little fanfare every time you bring it up (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, uh, I will forget because obviously I can't remember sequence of events. Yeah, that's I mean, this is clearly not true because you're never going to forget that I said that now. <laughs> I think no, you annoyed I... him a little bit, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I, what was I saying? What was I saying? Yeah, it, for me, it's always just like, you know, uh, I mean, I always, you know, I'm always trying to learn, always trying to learn better, always trying to learn, um, you know, learn things that I don't understand, don't know about, always trying to analyze, you know, why things I do don't work when they do. And just, you know, for me, my, one of my main passions is structure, understanding like, yeah. why, why do people like an escape room? For me, it's the most exciting. That's the most exciting thing of like, why do people like an escape room? Why are they having fun? Um, how can we you how can we therefore make it better engaging with the, what the sort of materialist construction of an escape room is and then also saying what is the meta construction of how that experience works and how can we meld the two together to create a better experience so that for me is very exciting and very interesting and you know I'm not saying I have all the answers uh, because who does but for me that's the most exciting part of any escape room or um, or any escape room journey is like being like, what is what is happening? Why does it work? And why am I excited? You know, for example, there's a there's a brilliant there's a couple of brilliant games in the Netherlands that I really love, and I came out and I was like, that game was incredible, but why am I feeling dissatisfied? And I was like, oh, that game didn't have a final act. You know, like I came, you know, like it's structured like a movie, and it just ends at the end of the second act. And I was like, right, okay, that's why I felt like I was in a movie that was cut short. Right. You know. And and that was exciting for me to like realize that and be like, oh, that's interesting. That's that's why that's why, although it was incredible, world, like world changing experience. That's one thing that I would I would do differently. I'm not someone who like offers feedback to people and stuff like that. That's not not, not in my style. And also, I feel find always find it's a bit arrogant. Yeah. But it's but for me, that's like that's exciting and being like, right, okay, I learned something from that. I learned to make sure that I don't do that in the future. You know. And there's all different types of things. I, I'm inspired, you know, inspired by theatre, inspired by film. I don't go to theatre that much, to be honest. But you know, I like watching movies. But um, but mostly, I'm interested in like writing on writing, writing on structure, and just using you know the tools that people who are clever than me have done before. Because you know, escape rooms are just another genre of theatre. Yeah. Really, they are just another genre of theatre. But the, where the audience is the actor, yeah. that's all it is. And they are the ones, you know, going through the experience and puzzles of the beats. And, you know, there's so much other than so much other people have done better than me that I can be like, okay, if that's what's happening, you know, and for me, that's quite exciting. Nice. Awesome. I want to zero in on two of your big projects that you, that are like, they're probably your most well-known, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Firstly, uh, Sherlock, obviously. Mm -hmm massive please also in your answers please try to spoil nothing for me because i'm dying to do it and i still haven't done it yet i, oh, I yeah that's fine i will promise I, won't. <laughs> I had a friend who worked there for a while she said she could get me discount and then she left so i'm annoyed at her um oh, but that's a bad friend <laughs> uh do you so when you were working on sherlock did you did you find it difficult designing the game along with sticking to the ethos of sherlock and the show uh that's an interesting question thank you so the way that sherlock works is that the science that so most people work in the in the world with 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 deductive reasoning right you see you have a series of things and you deduce what's happened but sherlock works uh in the show with inductive reasoning it all comes from within him and his mind palace you know yeah. he he is the, he has the superpower so inductive reasoning doesn't exist in real life so therefore there how do you make people feel like they're sherlock that's always like the fundamental question of like and the answer is you can't. You can't make people feel like Sherlock. 
but you can put people in situations to allow them to feel like they're in mastery of information and that they can piece it all together. And uh, and that was an interesting construction challenge, especially on a on a puzzle point of view. And I think in some in some parts um, I succeeded, and in some parts I could have done better. Um, and uh, uh, in the first room in Sherlock, I think I, I think that worked out rather well. See, no spoilers. Thank you. Um, uh, and I, I think I I think it was sort of uh, we sort of fixed it gradually as we went along a little bit. In that second room, I probably could have done a bit of a better job of doing that. But um, so the way that uh, I mean the project itself was was actually you know it was a hard project, but not really because of working within the constraints of the brand or working with anything like that. Because uh, luckily, um, Hartswood Films, uh, who we work very closely with, that's the production company of, of Sue Virtue and uh, and Stephen Moffat, um, who made Sherlock, are the best people, and they are just really nice people. So they were just the most generous, nicest people that I've like I've ever met and ever worked with. Nice. Which considering. We were just a small escape room company, and there, Stephen Moffat, Mark Gatiss, and Sue Virtue yeah. uh, was like incredibly nice of them. So just you know, being like just being able to go to the offices and sit and like Mark being like, "So, what's your ideas for the story?" Then <laughs> you know, uh, it was a very collaborative process, and they're just you know, and from that point of view, working with the constraints of the brand because we had so much access, because we were like, "Oh, we need some, we need some more, um, we need some more uh, audio from Benedict," and and Sue's like, "All right." Let's you and I go to his house tomorrow and we'll just uh, uh, and uh, bring your recording kit. And I was like, okay. Goodness. Is, <laughs> is he a nice person in real life or is there any kind of scandalous thing that we can out him for on the podcast? He's very, very nice. Oh, I imagine. Was, I'm glad, but also I wanted something. He was like, hi, I'm, hi, I'm Ben. He was just like, oh. That makes, my, that makes my skin just feel weird that he calls himself Ben. Yeah. And he was, he's just really nice, really oh. nice man. And we're just, and just, you know, Asked, you know, asked some nice questions. I did everything that was requested of him. Uh, but the car, because the cast is such a tote, tight knit group of people, like you know, Martin Freeman, uh, Benedict. Uh, sorry, Ben. Obviously, <laughs> he, he and I are friends now. He uh, <laughs> asked me to call him Ben. Your so nickname. Sorry, I, I have to. I have to remind myself that you know quite as well as I do. <laughs> Correct myself and just say Benedict. Um, uh, so uh, Ben Addict uh, and uh, I uh, obviously developed a huge report. No, not really. But they, they were all just really nice. They're really inquisitive. They're really excited by it. Excited about what's happening and just did whatever they thought was best for the project because Shed was a tight knit group of people who really got along really well and they're all friends. And so you know, uh, and uh, you know, Martin Freeman was really great when he just you know because we didn't have a we didn't, you know it was a project which we which we did as as best we could, but we didn't you know weren't still a super rich company so we were just like oh turn up to the could you just come to this green screen studio and do your john watson stuff and uh sue was like i just told him to just dress like john watson and he just turns up and said i think i've just worn a really buttoned up shirt is that all right it was just him on his own <laughs> he's like sorry i got lost in the way to the tube he's like what's <laughs> happening and oh my god it's like he's a real person yeah yeah and just entourage, the, but, yeah there's nothing yeah but it's all these like you know they were all you know they're all like it was just after Black Panther from Martin Freeman and Benedict was obviously huge, still is. Um, so they were all really nice, really nice people. It was, a, it was a really fun project. What was hard about it was the venue was very difficult and the venue had a lot of problems with it, like asbestos and like fire stuff and things like that. And what was the the, the stuff from their side, the stuff working with each other, stuff all that was really quite straightforward in the grand scheme of things. And whether you, whether the people who played think I succeed, you know, succeeded or not, you know, that's all in the eyes of the beholder. Um, but from that point of view, you know, it kind of happened as we wanted it to happen. 
but the venue was very difficult. We just had a, it was a, it was a nightmare venue situation. And I said, I think probably uh, every single escape Ramona has, who has ever existed has faced at some point where just nothing goes right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah, it was a it was a really exciting project uh, and a really fun project, and also just you know everyone was so laid back. It was quite amazing. Uh, I mean, this it's I mean you've seen the advert. This is not a spoiler because we've seen any adverts for it. I think you know that Andrew Scott is in it. Oh yeah, that's how yeah. yeah. But Andrew Scott gives the performance of a lifetime. He is unhinged in that game and he was you know there's loads of moriarty in that game in the show as well he was like difficult to watch but in a good way oh yeah and and a couple of bloggers came from the us and they were like i think andrew scott is better in the game is now than he is in the show (laughs) he's he's absolutely bonkers and he's totally mad yeah it was just great to have like that access that level of you know that level of level of contribution and like level of trust from the people who like made this at the time sherlock was just in the middle, when we started doing that project, just before the final season of Sherlock, Sherlock was the biggest show in the UK. Yeah. I one of the biggest shows in the world. I mean, I you know, it was an incredible experience to work on. And I think one thing that uh, you know, our people afterwards, have, I've done a lot uh, after sort of my in my uh, wasteland, my my wandering years after leaving Sherlock, uh, where I wandered through the desert uh, for many days and many nights. <laughs> um, uh, they, um, I used to work on a lot of other projects with IP, and they were like. What do you think? And I was like, don't do it. Don't do it because it's like, you're not going to get as much access as like we did with Sherlock. And it's going to be just like slapping a brand slap on it. Being like, and and I was like, unless you actually can do something useful with the IP, don't bother. And I think that that's, a, that's an industry lesson that I think some people have learned and some people have not. There's no point in just doing something with a brand slap because IPs put people off as much as they do turn people on. You should yeah. always do something that you think, wow, this is something great. The good thing about Sherlock as an IP is everyone has, whether you like the show or not, and some people don't, everyone has kind of a good enough relationship with the base source material that you can be like, oh, well, you know, not the greatest fan of the show, but it's Sherlock Holmes, right? So it's kind of generic, you know, it's specific but generic at the same time. I'm really glad to hear that, that like the group was so into it and they were excited by it and that they were contributing because I was worried that you were going to say that it was going to be really difficult and you had a bit of restriction or you had to follow some some guidelines and get in hold of them but I'm actually really glad to know that it was such a tight-knit such a collaborative experience That's... the first meeting the first meeting Stephen Moffat said everyone's going to say this is stupid but robot Moriarty and we were like <laughs> <laughs> and, and Mark's like Mark we, we, Stephen, we can't have robot Moriarty and, and Stephen's like ah yeah, we can't, but wouldn't it be fun? <laughs> this is why Doctor Who fans get so angry at Stephen Moffat. I feel like he doesn't, oh, he doesn't have so, anyone to rein him in. It's so unfair, though, because Stephen Moffat is the nicest, n- nicest man. He's, he's always like, seemed like a nice guy. He's just such a, he's just like a lovely, funny dad. And uh, yeah, and he's also the worst person at Escape Rooms I've ever seen in my life. For real? <laughs> yeah, genuinely the worst person at Escape Rooms that's ever existed in the history of the world. But, <laughs> but knows it, knows it and loves it. <laughs> oh, I love it. The... I am, I'm disappointed that we didn't get any scandal about the cast or anyone involved. But if, if, the, if we can sort of publicise that Stephen Moffat is just awful at Escape Rooms. We can yeah, he is. Yeah, he's definitely, he's definitely. Top of his career that way. But, but he's a brilliant man. Brilliant man. 
So we've come to the conclusion of part one of Nick Moran. And if you've enjoyed that, listeners, there is more. We're not just going to leave you on a massive cliffhanger. This isn't Firefly Nerds. We got you back. We're going to come to the close on this. So be sure to find part two and check it out. Thank you.